Welcome to another episode of Theology.fm. I'm your host, Jeremy Myers. I had a great revolution occur in my own theology when I first began to realize that God looks just like Jesus Christ, and specifically, Jesus dying on the cross. Now, historically and traditionally, Christians have always believed that God and Jesus are one, that Jesus reveals God to us, but really this belief has been put into practice by studying what the entire Bible says about God, including what the New Testament says about Jesus, and then sort of trying to piece it all together in, in, in some sort of understanding of what God is really like. And usually what has happened with that approach, in fact, that might have been your approach. It was my approach for a long time. You just sort of look at everything the Bible says and try to fit all the pieces together. What you end up with, though, is sort of a, I don't know, a two-faced God. On the one hand, you have this violent, bloodthirsty, enemy-killing God, the Old Testament, you know, and, and then also a few pictures in the New Testament, like this idea that of, of a violent God in Revelation and the God uh, who sends people to suffer forever in hell. Uh, but then we see a God as, as a God of love and patience and forgiveness and kindness when we look at Jesus Christ. And we have trouble fitting those two sides of God together. The big problem in Christian theology for 2,000 years has been how to reconcile these opposing viewpoints of God. Some have tried to sort of smash the two views together, some sort of reasonable way, but the attempts to do so are never successful or satisfying. You sort of end up rejecting one side of God or the other. You end up with an angry, bloodthirsty God who sort of looks like Jesus, Or you end up with sort of a a loving, merciful God and you end up having to say most of the Old Testament is in error or is wrong. I seesawed between these various perspectives for most of the early years of my life in seminary and pastoral ministries. But in recent years, I have come to see that the way forward is not by trying to reconcile the violence of God in the Old Testament with the enemy-forgiving love of Jesus in the Gospels, but instead allow the revelation of God in Jesus Christ to trump everything else. And more specifically, to allow the revelation of God in Jesus Christ on the cross to be the grid or the filter or the lens or the vision by which and through which we understand the Bible and everything the Bible says about God. This doesn't lead us to discredit or discard or or condemn the Old Testament as being hopelessly in error. Instead, it allows us to see God through the Old Testament in a whole new way. To see God with what what some people call cruciform eyes. To see God, what I call, with a crucifixion perspective. Anyway, the sermon I want to share with you today by Brian Zond, uh, it doesn't get into all the details of this way of understanding God how to interpret the Old Testament text. But it does introduce the listener to the revolutionary and completely shocking idea based on what we see in God, about God, in Jesus Christ on the cross. And it's this, that God is a suffering God. He's not impassable. It's a fancy theological word for being separate and and away and, and unchangeable. Instead, he is... He's not aloof either. He's not, he's not distant. Instead, he is God with us. He is truly Emmanuel, the one who enters into and joins with us 
in our suffering. When we suffer God, He's not just there to speak words of encouragement or put an arm or shoulder around, you know, arm around us or a shoulder to cry on. No, when we suffer, God enters into our suffering with us. God suffers with us. He is there with you in the midst of your pain, crying out right along with you, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what we're going to see today from Brian Zond and this message about the suffering God. It's also a topic, by the way, I wrote about in my book, The Atonement of God. In that book, I really show you how to view God through the crucifixion of Jesus. It will help you see God as as always loving, always forgiving, always gracious and kind. It's also going to help you understand yourself in a whole new way. See yourself in the pages of Scripture. It's going to help you understand all those Old Testament violent texts as well. So, If you've ever wondered sort of where you're at with God, what kind of God you serve, how to understand the violent portions of the Old Testament, I invite you to go get my book on Amazon. Just go to Amazon, search for The Atonement of God, and then read it. And as you do, you will see God in a whole new light. And you will see some of what Brian Zahn presents in this message today as well. So uh, with that in mind, let's tune in to see what Brian Zond has to say about the suffering God. Well, we're continuing in September and October with the series dealing with the subject of pain, the universal subject. It's the thing that we have all in common, and that is the reality of human pain. And the series is entitled, Jesus in a World of Hurt. We've been looking at human pain, how we understand it in the light of God, in the light of Scripture. Today, we're going to go very deep. And we're going to look not only at human pain, but at divine suffering itself. Divine suffering. Let's take a moment and pray. Grant us, Lord, not to be anxious about earthly things, but to love things heavenly. And even now, while we are placed among things that are passing away, to hold fast to those things that shall endure. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. John's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 1, which we heard read moments ago. John 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Ece homo. Behold the man. Pilate brings forth Jesus to the jeering crowd and says, Look at this man. See this man. Behold the man. See this man who is suffering. Is it enough? Is his suffering enough? It was not enough. This man would suffer 
much more. He would suffer further torture. He would suffer crucifixion. He would suffer an agonizing death. H.A. Homo. Behold the man. And this man, whom we behold, this man is God. Seen not as the omnipotent God, but seen as the suffering God. That's my title, that's my subject this morning. The suffering God. From the very beginning of human religious consciousness, we have shared similar images of God throughout cultures, throughout religions, throughout the world. The creator God. The glorious God. The omnipotent God. The holy God. The avenging God. The merciful God. But this. This is something other. This is something altogether unanticipated, unimagined, unexpected. The suffering God. A God who suffers. Well, the idea... The very proposition that God could and would truly suffer is so foreign to us, even scandalous to us, that it took the church nearly 2,000 years to come to terms with it and to admit it, to embrace it, and to confess it. In fact, it took the world wars and the Holocaust for the church to see the suffering God. Shortly before he was executed by the Nazis, Lutheran theologian Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote this on a scrap of paper that was smuggled out of his prison. Only the suffering God can help. Only the suffering God can help. Written on a scrap piece of paper by one of the most brilliant theologians of the 20th century a few days before he was executed. Now if we go back to the beginning of the church, in church history and the church fathers, from the Greek philosophy, Platonist-influenced church fathers, until the middle of the 20th century... Christian theologians were reluctant or in many cases actually refused to say that God actually suffers. They spoke instead of the impassibility of God. The word impassibility means incapable of suffering. And that was really the theological position that dominated Christian thought from the first, second, third centuries all the way up until the middle of the 20th century. Their argument was something like this. To suffer is to change, and because God doesn't change, therefore God doesn't suffer. And that was the theological position that was dominant through all of that period. But 70 years ago, all of that changed. 
And we began to talk about the suffering God. Now, I, could, I can go into you know, aspects of technical theology, if you like, and talk about the primordial nature of God as unchanging, the consequential nature of God. That is what changes. But we need not go into that. What forced Christian theology to rethink the suffering of God was the horrors of the 20th century. I'm talking about the two world wars. Better thought of as a single event stretching out over 30 years. First there was World War I. And this was something altogether new. Now war was mechanized. Now we would have chemical war. Trench war. Now war would be able to produce killing at an unprecedented, unimagined scale. So that in the first world war, some 20 million people were killed. We'd never seen it like this. This was unimaginable. 20, our, our sophistication, our rapid advancement in technology We didn't dream that it would do that, that it would enable us to kill by the millions. Well, that was the war to end all wars. But then came the one after that, World War II. And it was even more horrible and bloody, deadly. In World War II, it would not just be Armies, the idea of of war had always been, you know, that armies met out on a battlefield and settled the matter there. But now the battlefield was everywhere. There was no place that wasn't the battlefield. The battlefield was the cities. London, Dresden, Hiroshima, Nagasaki. So that in World War II, there were 24, Five million military deaths and 47 million civilian deaths. Almost two civilians died in World War II for every one soldier that died. War was now totalized. Now if we add to that the deaths produced by the totalitarian regimes of Mao and Stalin then the first half of the 20th century witnessed the death of 150 million people through systematic killing. At the dark heart of the 20th century hell of this unspeakable horror is the Shoah or the Jewish Holocaust. I don't know that we'll ever come to terms with it. How do we process it? How is it that the most educated and advanced nation on earth could systematically murder six million people simply because they were Jewish? Well, after the smoke cleared from the ovens of Auschwitz, And the mushroom cloud over Hiroshima. The church could no longer speak of God as being impassable. 
There was this profound seismic shift in theology. It happened all across the board. Christian theology, Jewish theology, everything shifted. Nobody was talking about God being impassable anymore. In a post-Holocaust world, to speak of God as non-suffering seems to be almost blasphemous. Yes, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who was himself hung upon Nazi gallows, got it exactly right. Only the suffering God can help. In the world after the Holocaust, humanity says, if God doesn't know what it is to suffer, then never mind. Just forget about it. Yet to speak of the suffering of God is not a mere concession to post-Holocaust sensibilities. It was there all along. It was there all along in the scriptures, in the incarnation, in the revelation of who Jesus Christ is. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And if Jesus Christ really is God with us, if he really is Emmanuel, then to be truly with us, God must suffer. Any being who says, I'm really with you, humanity, that being must suffer because to be one of us is to feel pain. And if you're going to be one of us, There's going to be suffering involved. Let me mention another Lutheran theologian, Ergon Moltmann. He's, I believe, now 87 years old, still active. One of the great theologians of the 20th century. He was uh, born in Germany in in 1926, raised in a thoroughly secular, atheistic household, knew nothing of God, never went to church. Thoughts of God never crossed his mind. He was drafted into the German army in 1944. Almost immediately was captured by British soldiers. Spent three years in a British prison of war camp in Scotland. And there he became a Christian. There he heard really for the first time the gospel of Jesus Christ, became a believer, and then later, on, later went on and became one of the most important, one of the most influential theologians of the 20th century. His most important book is The Crucified God. And in The Crucified God, Ergen Moltmann says this, a God who is only omnipotent is an incomplete being, for he cannot experience... Helplessness and powerlessness. What a radical thought. I'm pretty sure that nobody really ever thought that about God until after the Holocaust. But Ergon Moltmann writes, A God who is only omnipotent is an incomplete being for he cannot experience helplessness and powerlessness. Omnipotence is never loved, it is only feared. A God who is incapable of suffering is a being who cannot be involved. He is completely insensitive. He cannot weep, for he has no tears. Aristotle's God, the unmoved mover, cannot love. But our God loves. 
and our God suffers. For he is known as God in the crucified Son of Man. Do you know about Elie Wiesel? Truly one of the great human beings. Elie Wiesel, Romanian-born Jew, now an American citizen, author of 57 books, human rights activist, Nobel Prize laureate, and Holocaust survivor. His best-known book, published in 1955, is Night, the most moving account of the Holocaust that I've ever read. If you are only ever going to read one book from the Holocaust genre, it should be Elie Wiesel's Night. It's his account of being a slave laborer in the Nazi death camps at both Auschwitz and Buchenwald. Elie Wiesel is actually in that picture. He's 16 years old and he's, he's one of those young men in that picture taken at the death camp in Buchenwald. Elie Wiesel watched his father be beaten to death at Auschwitz by Nazi guards. He lost all of his family. He himself survived. But in his memoir, Night, he tells us that though he himself survived the Holocaust, his faith in God did not. That his faith in God was among the casualties of the Holocaust. That's what he wrote in 1955 as a young man in his 20s. Today, in his 80s, slowly, his faith has recovered. And now Elie Wiesel is a praying, devout, observant Jewish man. But at night he tells this awful story. Well, the whole story is awful. The whole book's awful, but you you should still read it. He tells a story about how there had been an infraction among the slave laborers there at, I believe this occurred in Buchenwald. And so to punish some of these Jewish slave laborers, it was decided they would hang three. And they hung two men and one boy, a young boy, maybe eight or nine. But the little boy was so small that his neck was not broken when he fell from the gallows. And so he just hung there, dying this slow, lingering, miserable death. And the the Jewish inmates were, were forced to stand at attention and watch this. And watch this little boy slowly die. And while they were watching this horrid spectacle, somebody near Elie Wiesel whispered, Where is God? Where is God? And another voice said, I'll tell you where God is. He's right there on the gallows. Strangely enough, this is what we confess as Christians. That God has been hung upon the gallows. That's what we confess. Pontius Pilate says, behold the man. And here is a man wearing a crown of thorns. Here is a man that is suffering. Here is a man that has been beaten. Here is a man that will be crucified and will be hanged upon the gallows of a tree until dead. Pontius Pilate says, behold the man. Confessing Christians say, behold our God. 
It's almost an incredible claim. It's very daring. It's scandalous. The apostle Paul would call it the offense of the gospel. That we confess that this tortured man upon a tree is our God. The crucified Jesus hung on the gallows of the cross is the image of the invisible God. The Apostle Paul tells us that Christ is nothing less than this, this human being. This is the Word, the Logos of God made flesh, and His defining moment is what He does upon the cross. Jesus Christ crucified is the image, the icon, the pure revelation of the invisible God. Being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death. Jesus Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. God is like that. On the cross, Jesus doesn't suffer for us to satisfy God. He suffers with us as God. Now, what does the Christian symbol of the cross mean? What does the Christian symbol of the cross say if it doesn't say we believe in the suffering God? How can it be that the cross is our symbol, which it is, if we don't believe in the suffering God? Yes, that's what the cross means. It means that we who are Christians confess that we believe in the suffering God. Let's look at this suffering A little bit more. God not only became human, which is scandalous enough, fully human, really human, human like you and human like me, he became like us, but God in Christ did not merely become human, he became the kind of human we don't want to be. He became a despised And rejected outcast. A failure. I want you to think deeply this morning upon the death of Jesus Christ. His death was as a failure. It was not the noble death of a heroic martyr. Yes, in light of the resurrection, we see the cross completely different. Yes, that's the whole point. But I'm telling you, in the moment, on that first Good Friday, as Jesus of Nazareth, condemned by Caiaphas, sentenced to death by Pontius Pilate, as he hangs upon that tree for six hours, suffering and dying, he is dying the death of a failed Messiah. It's the ultimate I told you so moment. There's no halo around him. There's no, nothing that appears to be noble, heroic, or glorious about this. This is an ignoble death. A shameful death. A miserable failure of a death. Jesus died. Not just died. It would be enough that God became man and, and lived in glory and splendor and was called a king. 
and died at the ripe old age of 99. That would be incredible. But that's not what we see. We see a young man in his prime cut down. He spoke of a new kingdom. He spoke of a new way of being human. Everybody said you can't do it. And then they proved that they were right and he was wrong. And they nail him naked to a tree and torture him to death. And even his disciples had forsaken him. Jesus died the worst death that he might go down into the ugliest depths of death. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel. God with us. In life, in struggle, in sorrow, in pain, and yes, even in death. Whatever it means for a human being to die, God in Christ has experienced. But this is not just an act of solidarity. It is also an act of salvation. In his sermon, that is the book of Hebrews, the writer says this, We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. God in Christ suffered death that he might enter into death and defeat death inside its own domain. God in Christ was swallowed up by death that he might destroy death from the inside out. God in Christ went all the way down into the ugliest depths of death that he might lead the way out. So that when you in Christ go down into death, there's a way out. In fact, you in Christ, when you die, you will not see death, you will see Christ. Because he will be there to meet you, having defeated death. His suffering with us is not just an act of solidarity. It is also an act of salvation. The mystery of salvation is this. By his wounds, we are healed. It's a mystery. By his wounds, we are healed. Scriptural revelation is filled with these kind of sacred paradoxes. By his wounds, we are healed. He was wounded so that we might be healed. The chastisement for our peace was laid upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. Maybe this is why even in his resurrected body, Jesus is still able to display his wounds. Because when we bring our wounds to the wounds of Christ. See, Christ has been truly wounded. He's not one that says, well, I haven't really been wounded, but I still think I can help you. No, only the suffering God can help. Only the suffering God can help. We bring our wounds to Jesus. He says, oh, I know. I have been wounded too. Oh, I know. I know what it is to be spit upon. 
and reviled and hated and rejected and betrayed. I know. I know what it is to be beaten. I know what it is to be abused. I know. See my hands. See my side. Know that it is, that it is I. And he invites us, like Thomas, he invites us to touch his wounds, to lay our own wounds upon his wounds. And that's where the miracle begins to happen. I don't know how to explain it. I'm not particularly interested in trying to explain it. Somehow I just know that this is the way it works, that when we lay our wounds upon the wounds of Christ, it does not multiply woundedness. It begins the healing. It begins the healing. Only the suffering God can help. This is what we do when we come to the sacred mystery of communion. It's, it's not just a symbol, my friends. It's not just a symbol. It's a participation in the real presence of Christ. The Apostle Paul said it this way. The cup of blessing which we bless is our koinonia. It's a Greek word. It means fellowship. Sharing, participation. The cup of blessing which we bless is our sharing, participation, fellowship in the blood of Christ. He says, our, the bread which we break in memory of the broken body of Jesus, the wounded body of Jesus. The bread which we break is our koinonia, our fellowship, our sharing, our own participation in the broken body of Jesus. When we bring our wounds to the broken body of Jesus, something mysterious and wonderful begins to occur. As we eat and drink from the wounds of Christ, the healing begins. This is why you've come today. Yes, you've come to join with singing songs of praise, you've come to give. You've come to be instructed from the word of God. That's all good. But what you really come for today is to come to this table. Amen. To bring your own woundedness to this table. And to eat and drink from the wounds of Christ that your healing might happen. His wounds are different than any other wounds because he is God. He is the suffering God who helps he was wounded that we might be healed. By his wounds, we are healed. We interact in a most literal sense. We interact, not just with you sitting there hearing me talk about it, but you interact when you come to the table and you eat of this bread and you drink of this cup. You participate in the wounds of Christ. You eat and drink from the wounds of Christ and it begins the healing in you. And so that's what I want you to do. I want you to come with your wounds to this very sacred and very mysterious place of healing. Bring your wounds of rejection and betrayal. Bring your wounds of abuse and addiction. Bring your wounds of failure and shame. 
Bring your wounds of a thousand little things. Sometimes it's not one big thing. And other people would have a hard time understanding why you feel wounded because you don't have some horrific story to tell, but it's just been a thousand things. A thousand little cuts have taken their toll. And you are very aware of your own woundedness. Then you are invited to come. And bring your wounds to the wounds of Christ. Eat and drink from his wounds and let the healing begin. That's why he came. That's why he took on flesh. That his flesh might be broken. That his blood might be shed. Because only the suffering God can help. But he is here to help. He is here to help. Stand up with me. God, we believe We believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. We believe that he is very God of very God. He is your word made flesh. That he was born at Bethlehem, crucified at Golgotha, raised on the third day. We believe in Jesus Christ and we believe that by his wounds, our wounds are healed. That when we bring our wounds to his wounds, our wounds begin to heal. We believe it's true that only the suffering God can help. And God, we believe that in Christ, you are the suffering God who helps. That is, who saves. That is, who heals. That is, who redeems. That is, who restores. That is, who raises the dead. So now we prepare our hearts that we might come to this table, this place of sacred mystery. That we might eat and drink from the wounds of Christ. And be healed in our own places of woundedness. And we pray together the prayer of confession. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Hopefully, after listening to this message by Brian Zond about the suffering of God, you have a greater appreciation for how much God loves you, how much He understands the pain and the suffering that you go through in this life. Never, ever forget, God is with you in your pain. He is present in your sufferings. Just like Jesus God is acquainted with grief and sorrow. Now, I know lots of theologians are uncomfortable with that idea, but I believe it is a truth which helps us relate to God like never before. But what do you think? I would like to know your thoughts, your ideas, your objections, your comments on the subject. And you can leave those by going over to theology.fm slash brianzond slash 18. That's the uh, podcast episode for Theology.fm. Leave your questions and comments there. 
Also, when you go there, you may notice that there's a link to my book. If you really appreciated and enjoyed some of what Brian Zond has shared in this message, I think you will also like to read my book, The Atonement of God. It's on a similar theme, similar topic, helping us understand the character and nature of God through the revelation of Jesus Christ and especially Jesus Christ on the cross. Christ and Him crucified. It's also going to help you understand yourself. It's going to help you understand politics, culture, religion, justice, forgiveness, sin even. I have an appendix in there on the wrath of God, how to understand the wrath of God. So if those sorts of things are interesting to you, head over to Amazon, search for The Atonement of God, and read that book. When you do that, you will see your life and theology beginning to look more and more like Jesus Christ. And that's the goal, isn't it? Go get the book, read it, and thank you for listening to this episode of Theology.fm. <laughs>